0: Good. Well, thank you all very much for coming this evening. This is uh, International History Department, our annual lecture, grand lecture. And we have a very grand speaker, old colleague of ours, Dr John Darwin, who is a fellow of Nuffield College at Oxford, wrote initially on British Empire decolonisation and in the last four, five years has produced two tremendous books, one of which is called After Tamburlaine Tremendous Survey uh, of History of the Great Land Empires in particular which won the Wolfson Prize in 2008 and just now uh, out last year a book called The Empire Project on the rise and fall of the British world system. We're enormously lucky to have John here this evening. He's going to talk about geopolitics and imperialism, the British Empire and Holford Mackinder, 1890 to 1940. Thank you very much for coming.
1: Thank you very much for that. Uh, welcome, Dominic. Well, this may be the right time and the right place to talk about Halford Mackinder and the British Empire. This institution, after all, began as an imperial think tank, although, judged by results, perhaps, uh, the quality of thought may not have been quite what was required for the survival of the institution. Is <laughs> also um, just over a 100 years <clears throat> since Halford Mackinder abandoned the directorship Of the LSE, an august or perhaps nearly august position, uh, to seek uh, election to the House of Commons. Giving up a position of influence, prestige, and independence to become an MP might strike one nowadays as being a career move approaching the suicidal. But it tells, I think, something of the relative status of academic institutions and political institutions in Mackinder's day, that he should have regarded this as being, as it were, a higher level to which to aspire. Now, our two two protagonists, Halford Mackinder and the British Empire. Mackinder, of course, as perhaps you know, was born in 1861. In Gainsborough, that is to say, George Eliot's Snogs on the Floss, Uh, In 1861, he died in Bournemouth, where all successful people from the Midlands die, in 1947, at the age of 86. The British Empire has a more dubious paternity, but if one traces its DNA fairly carefully, we can probably find it to have been born in 1133 at Le Mans in northern France. It died in London in 1968 after a tropical illness, long tropical illness, with financial complications at the age of 865. The paths of these two protagonists crossed in the first half of the 19th century when Mackinder was in vigorous middle age and the British Empire was thought wrongly also to be in vigorous middle age. Now what has Mackinder got to offer us in trying to make sense of the geopolitics of the British Empire in the first half of the 20th century? That's to say, when I use the term geopolitics, the way in which its fortunes and fate were shaped or affected by the changing geographical distribution of power in this period. We might begin, I think, by just glancing briefly at MacKinder's big ideas. Some of them perhaps are very, very familiar to you, but let me perhaps refresh your memory. And I've got a list here of six which I think are worth noticing. The first is Mackinder's belief in the inevitability of empire. Here are two quotations. We have come, he wrote in 1909, to the time of great empires. At the end of his life, or shortly before it, in 1943, he could write, I have always felt that the grouping of lands and seas is such as to lend itself to the growth of empires, and in the end, of a single world empire. Mckinder's second big idea was that he was living through, and the world was living through, the the appearance of a closed system of world politics. The open frontiers of the 19th century had been closed, and the effects of great power activity in any one part of the world were bound, he said, to react back upon their activities everywhere else, so that Europe itself became, you might say, as it were, on the receiving end of all kinds of great power conflicts and and uh, competition all around the world. He thought, again writing at the end of his life, that all the great conflicts he would seen had been a consequence of the attempt to achieve a transition into this new age of the closed system. Thirdly, Mackinder of course famously believed that by the end of the 19th century the world had seen the end of what he called the Columbian Epoch, the period in which the ease and speed of seaborne movement had far outmatched that of of movement across land, with a consequent benefit, of course, to those powers and states which relied upon or could exploit seaborne movement. Fourthly, of course, and perhaps most famously, Mackinder emphasized what he saw as being the rising power, the irresistibly rising power of the heartland, that great Eurasian land mass, which he defined, as it were, at times, rather differently from other times, a rising power which resulted from the fact that its population, particularly he was thinking, of course, of, uh, of Russia and uh, Russia's extensive dominion, both to as far east as the Pacific and as far west as Poland, and the rising power of that Eurasian heartland could be uh, attributed to the growth of population, to the, therefore the existence of a powerful garrison capable of defending its territory against outsiders, and of course especially to the arrival of railways, which recreated, in Mackinder's view, the capacity for rapid movement over land which had once enabled the Mongols to sweep from one end of Eurasia to the other. And of course it was this that led Mackinder to that most famous of his triplets, who rules the heartland, rules the world island, who rules the world island, rules the world. Fifthly, McKinder nevertheless stresses, in a way which, might think, is going to act as the saving grace for the power whose interests he was most concerned with, Britain and the British Empire, the power of what he called the going concern. Getting there first, said McKinder, did enable a power, a state, as it were, to create the right circumstances for its own survival, if it was capable, as it were, of maintaining uh, power effectively. It was impossible, he wrote in 1904, for Britain to regain, as it were, the position it had achieved by the end of the 19th century in the new circumstances it faced. But that didn't mean, of course, it was not able to maintain that position uh, if it followed, as it were, the right practice and the right policy. Lastly, perhaps, element of Mackinder's thought, not always uh, perhaps taken quite as seriously, as his uh, grander geopolitical notions, his insistence that economic success, economic strength, also depended upon geopolitical power. It was McKinder who argued that the British were able to exploit India's economy because they controlled India. It was McKinder who argued that free trade was a form of empire. He did so long before Gallagher and Robinson pointed it out, rather more famously in 1953. Well, these are Mackinder's big ideas, and I hope in the discussion afterwards you perhaps will be able to point out to me if I've forgotten any. What are the puzzles to which we might try to apply them, the puzzles about the nature of Britain's geopolitical the British Empire's geopolitical fate in the 20th century? Perhaps the most fundamental is the way in which strategy was framed in Britain as a result of uh, the outlook and the mentality of British elite, British opinion formers, uh, from the late 19th century onwards. Strategy, wrote two of the wisest, the most brilliant historians of British imperialism, strategy, they wrote, is the register of the hopes, the memories and neuroses which inform the strategist's view of the world. What that suggests to us is that the way in which the British sought to maintain an empire, sought to defend it, the enemies they perceived, the solutions they adopted, resulted from a particular kind of mentality or mindset which dominated the thinking of British policymakers, British politicians, all those concerned with Britain's external position from, I would suggest, the late 1880s until the 1960s. Where did it come from and what was the key to its formation? Secondly, our second puzzle. In the 20th century, we like to think, or tend to think, that Britain's external position was dominated by its two great wars with Germany. But it might be asked whether, nevertheless, it was really the Anglo-Russian relationship that was most fundamental to the survival, or not, of a British imperial system. This was certainly, if you follow Mackinder's logic, what that implied. Thirdly, it's a cliché, of course, that sea power was the basis for British world power in the 20th century, perhaps, as much as in the 19th. And it would clearly be uh, very bold to suggest that it wasn't it was anything other than extremely necessary to the maintenance of an imperial system which stretched around the world in a form, you might say, of an imperial archipelago of interests and possessions. The question which Mackinder poses for us is when well, the puzzle which we try to approach is was it sufficient to maintain British world power? What else was required? And that leads on perhaps to the fourth of our puzzles. This is the enigma, you might say, wrapped in a riddle. The reasons behind the British invasion of the Middle East. From 1882, or perhaps even the 1790s onwards, The British, you might say, right up until very late in their imperial career, push ever deeper into the Middle East. The weaker they got, you might think, the further they went, like a man seeking to dig himself out of a hole, but digging ever deeper in the process. What explanation can be found what still seems to be one of the most puzzling aspects of the later uh, period of British imperial activity? And finally, perhaps, in some ways, the most intriguing question of all. Should the decline of British imperial power be seen as a gradual descent, or is it really better to be seen, not even as a decline, but as a catastrophic collapse? We're all familiar with that splendid term of managed decline, that fatuous Foreign Office phrase, I can still hear, flashed around the media, even as recently as two days ago, a phrase which rather suggests the utterance of a man who's driven his car over a cliff, and whose last words as he hurtles towards the bottom of the ravine were, I think I took that, Ben, rather well, don't you? But before we plunge into Mackinder's ideas, we should spend perhaps a moment or two examining his career, partly because of the extraordinary cocktail of elements that shaped his ideas. Mackinder's background, of course, lay in a medical family. His father was a a doctor, and I think his uh, other relations as well were in the medical profession. But from very early on, McKinder became fascinated, as he tells us, by maps. As a schoolboy, he wrote in his fragment of autobiography, preserved in that tin trunk of his papers, all all that remains, sadly, of what must have been a much, much larger archive. I was caned, he writes, for drawing maps. But of course, perhaps he was not the only schoolboy to have been punished for drawing irregular shapes on pieces of paper, when he should otherwise have been studying, in this case, his Latin composition. But Mackinder went on uh, to study natural sciences, first of all, and then history at Oxford. As an activity in the sideline, he engaged in what was then called Kriegspiel, wargaming. After graduating, he considered and rejected, like perhaps most highly intelligent people, the career of law as a profession. But unlike many of those who reject law as a profession, he turned to geography instead. (laughs) Mackinder's great achievement, you might think, his astonishing quality, was his capacity for bringing maps to life. It is the creation of the human activity, the human history that we can that could be conceived as having produced particular kinds of cartographic consequences. That was Mackinder's great distinguishing mark, his great quality of imagination, it seems to me. But he was also a profound historical thinker. It's impossible, I think, to read his democratic ideals uh, uh, and realities without, as it were, seeing somebody who thought deeply and widely about the nature of world history over the long period. His ideas transcended the usual Eurocentric outlook, characteristic of most historians, and most thinkers, of his own day. But Mackinder also possessed, as well, not simply a contemplative intellect, but as I've already suggested, an enormous energy and drive, an urge to engage with the world, as well, the real world, as opposed to the, as it were, the world of academia and thought and literature. And he followed the Thames, you might say, in pursuit of that career, coming first of all, the reader in geography, the founding reader in geography in Oxford, going downriver to become the principal of Reading University, and then briefly, simultaneously, becoming, of course, the director of this institution, requiring, as he rightly pointed out, since he had to move so frequently between these three centers of activity, no less than three dinner suits in order to carry out his, his customary roles. How did Mackinder make so much progress? Beatrice Webb offers us a characteristically Webbian verdict. He, she wrote, is a coarse-grained individual. If he got his foot on the ladder, he might go towards the top, especially as there is an absence of able young men. Though he might think is a kind of verdict on the success of almost all those who rise to leadership positions, the assumption that there are not enough able young men around. Perhaps there weren't enough able young men in the Labour Party a few years ago. (laughs) Mackinder was recruited, however, in 1908 by Milner and Leopold Amery because they believed he had an enormous contribution to make to the causes they held most dear. And as we'll see in a minute, they were influenced by Mackinder's writing in 1904 in particular. With Milner's sponsorship and financial support, Mackinder became an MP between 1910 and 1922 for Glasgow Camlachie. He was an ardent tariff reformer, but an ardent tariff reformer also who believed that it was tariff reform which could achieve social reform. The slums of Glasgow, he told the Glasgow Herald on one occasion, were a consequence of free trade. And tariff reform would also enable the renovation the conservation of Britain's manpower, because manpower, a word which Mackinder also claimed to have coined, was something which he regards as being fundamental to the future and strength of Britain and the British Empire. After the war, in which he had a major role in promoting recruitment and uh, national savings, Mackinder, might say, perhaps rather uh, symbolically, became Britain's High Commissioner in South Russia (laughs) to promote, as it were, the defence of British interests against the impending power of a Bolshevik heartland. And then he turned, perhaps again rather strikingly, to become chairman of something called the Imperial Shipping Committee, in other words, that his ideas about the relationship between sea power and land power are rather nicely reflected in the move from being concerned with the heartland to be concerned with the the defence, protection, the enhancement of Britain's mercantile sea power, a role he retained until 1945, writing some 250 reports, nine of them, no less, on that extraordinarily complex question, the Hudson's Bay marine insurance rate issue. Now, for some reason, historians have neglected the question of the Hudson's Bay marine insurance rates, a topic I think... Uh, far too fascinating to be left fallow for much longer. Indeed, I was tempted to spend most of the rest of my time talking about it, but I thought that it might be even more exciting than the fall of the rupee and overexcite the audience. What you get from this, I think, is the way in which Mackinder was constantly engaged with the contemporary scene, and the way it's exerted a profound influence on his thought in a way which I'm now going to try and spell out a little bit more fully. The reputation, as we already mentioned, was made by his insistence on the way in which the heartland, the great central mass of Eurasia, was going to become the dominant force in 20th century world politics. But actually, there was, right through his career, a chronic tension between this insistence upon the importance of the heartland and the way in which it would affect the fate of the British Empire and perhaps a curious. Sub, uh, submerge confidence in the capacity of sea power to preserve British power against this great impending threat. We can see that tension in the two major writings he produced before 1914. In 1902, he published, this is Magnum Opus, uh, Britain and the British Seas, published in the same year, incidentally, of course, as Hobson's Imperialism, the study. In it, he presents What you might call a conventionally Mahanite view of Britain's enormous benefit from its position as a sea power. The unique advantages which were gained by both its insularity and what he saw as being its capacity to display a kind of universal, to develop a universal connection with other parts of the world. Britain's success, argued Mackinder in that book displayed the dominant value of sea power in the modern globe-wide world. And unlike Hobson, he was entirely happy with what he saw as being the two kinds of empire of which Britain stood at the centre, an empire of settlement, of settler colonies, but also an empire of uh, dependencies ruled by British officialdom. Certainly, Mackinder recognised the way in which Britain now seemed to be, as it were, Uh, In competition with other potential world powers, other world states. But, he insisted, they too had given hostages to fortune, which reduced their capacity to engage in an all-out assault upon Britain's world interests. There was, he argued at the end of that book, no real danger of Britain succumbing to this competition as long as Britain maintained what he called its moral qualities. Two years later, of course, in this famous article published in 1904, the geographical pivot of history, uh, Mackinder went, you might say, into sharp reverse. Of course, in that article, he did not yet identify the heartland in the way which he did in democratic ideals and reality, and what uh, what he talks about instead is what he calls the pivot state, a kind of expanded Russia. But he insisted in that article that this new and expanding pivot state, fortified, as I suggested a moment ago, by a much increased population, by a much greater capacity to move across land as a result of railways, this pivot state was now in a position to apply pressure in many directions, compressing and disrupting other states in the process. The great change had been the way in which railways had reversed the advantage of sea power, and population growth enabled what had once been an empty Eurasian zone to now become, as it were, militarily powerful in a way inconceivable before perhaps the early 19th century. The implications for Britain, Mackinder implied, were that it would now have to consolidate its strength, particularly its manpower, which it meant, of course, its settler empire in particular to integrate both its economy and its military strength far more than before, and also to conscript its population to have the means for fighting a major war were that to come about. And precisely those recommendations, of course, were those which recommended him to the great uh, champions of imperialism and imperial unity in Edwardian Britain, Joseph Chamberlain, Lord Milner, and Lord Milner's great sidekick, Leopold Amory. But if we're trying to puzzle out the way in which Britain's or the British Empire's geopolitical fortunes might be expected to be changed in this period, Mackinder's diagnosis really looks rather strange. It was, of course, predicated upon a Russian victory in the war with Japan that was then ongoing. Like many people in Britain, Mackinder expected that the Russians would defeat the Japanese. But of course they didn't. And this is also a period in which Britain's own prosperity and economic success was strikingly vindicated by the huge increase in British overseas investment, the huge increase in British volumes of trade, and the huge increase in British migration to other parts of the British Empire. As well as that, we might think it's surprising that Mackinder failed to notice the extraordinary economic development growth strength of the United States, which would be expected to act in many ways as a source for British supply were there to be a conflict between the rimlands of the world and the great um, heartland in the centre of the world island. Compared with the United States, of course, the heartland was, industrially speaking, a minnow. Thirdly, of course, in this period, the British were extremely successful, you might think, in relieving the pressure upon their far-flung possessions and interests through a series of ententes with France and then, of course, in 1907 with Russia, as well as through the alliance with Japan, which appeared to protect against future attack uh, the important interests in East Asia, especially the major British interest in China. And lastly, economic and commercial success made it possible as against the threat posed by German naval power for Britain to compete in a headlong naval race and by 1912 to have clearly won it in a way which ultimately secured, or was certain to secure, British interests against the threat posed by a surface German fleet were that to be uh, built. Now, despite, I might say, the shortcomings of Mackinder's diagnosis, there are two points to be extracted from those two pieces of his writing before 1914, which have, I think, a wider interest and significance. The point that Mackinder does make, very validly, I think, in Britain and the British Seas, is that at the end of the, by the end of the 19th century, if not earlier, Britain had become what he called the central land of the world. The British developed a sense Kinder suggests, of centrality. And that idea of centrality in the world does seem to me to be fundamental to the make-up of that late Victorian imperial mentality. It explains two things which often seem to be puzzling, I think, to historians. First of all, the exuberant confidence that Britain was able to exert its will, its interests, in different parts of the world, in all parts of the world and that Britain was going to be the beneficiary of the growth of the world economy for the indefinite future. That was the upside. But the downside was the sense of exposure by being this central land, whose borders were open to all the pressures, economic, perhaps and geopolitical, of the rest of the world. The downside was Britain's exposure to these vast Geopolitical, geo-economic pressures rolling through the world system, the pressures that made the British people, British leaders, British elites, feel constantly nervous about whether or not Britain had the capacity to cope with these uh, pressures uh, in periods, perhaps, of international crisis. Secondly, of course, you might say Mackinder guarded himself against the, uh, The criticisms which I've just been enunciating about his diagnosis of Britain's position by a single deadly phrase. Supposing, he wrote, Germany were to ally herself with Russia, then perhaps the heartland might indeed prove to be far too strong an enemy for the British imperial archipelago. Well, we might be tempted to, might have been tempted to dismiss as irrelevant then. McKinder's diagnosis, but only if we forget what happened in 1918, the pivot year indeed of the First World War. Here let me quote from a letter written by Lord Milner, who was then effectively the director of the British war effort, to Lloyd George on the 9th of June 1918. We must be prepared, wrote Milner, for France and Italy both being beaten to their knees. This was in the aftermath of Germany's great um, uh, great, uh, advance uh, on the West after having defeated uh, Russia. In that case, the germano austro turco bulgar bloc will be master of all Europe and Northern and Central Asia up to the point at which Japan steps in to bar the way if she does step in and has not been choked off by the more disastrous diplomacy of the Allies. Unless the only remaining free peoples of the world America, this country, and the Dominions are knit together in the closest conceivable alliance and prepared for the maximum of sacrifice, the central bloc under the hegemony of Germany will control not only Europe and most of Asia, but the whole world. To suppose that Germany, with such a prospect in view, will desist now, as in June, seems quite out of the question. What Milner is describing, you might say, in language which is um, so classically Milnerite is a vision contained in Mackinder's... Uh, sorry, classically Mackinderite, is a vision contained, of course, in Mackinder's global uh, geographical pivot of history. And, of course, it was a crucial fact in 1918 that two most powerful figures who made policy inside the British War Cabinet were both Mackinderites, Milner by conversion perhaps, Curzon, Lord Curzon, by by Spiegel instinct. What were the consequences of that Mackinderite outlook? They were dramatic. The Eastern Committee set up in the British War Cabinet to manage the war between Greece and Afghanistan—that was its—that uh, were the terms of reference—set in motion a huge new effort in the course of 1918 to prevent what Milner believed was going to be the German-Ottoman onslaught into the Middle East to control what Mackinder had called the crossways of the world. By the middle of the later part of 1918, British troops could be found not only in Persia, North Persia, in Transcaspia, in the Caucasus, but of course the British had also committed themselves controlling not only Mesopotamia, but also those portions of Syria allocated in 1916 to French control in the event of victory in the war, as well as, of course, to the control under some auspices or other of Constantinople itself, the Straits. And even after the defeat of the Germans and Ottomans, it was the set policy of the British government, certainly in Curzon's view, to keep Russia out of the Middle East by by maintaining a powerful British presence there with client states, as it were, to do its bidding. Now we know, of course, that in the eventual outcome the the extent of British command of the Middle East was considerably scaled back. But nevertheless, Curzon's great diplomatic victory at Lausanne ensured that Turkey would not contest Britain's interest in the control of Iraq and Large parts of the Arab world after 1923, and that the British were able, therefore, to expand their empire in this dramatic way far beyond the old limits imagined by 19th or even early 20th century British diplomats and policymakers. But there were huge implications with this vast forward movement, this Mackinderite forward movement into the Middle East, especially in terms of their impact upon India whose manpower is now being raised in the late part of the war on a vaster scale than ever before, with rather obvious consequences later to be seen in 1919 in the Punjab, in the alienation of Muslim opinion, in the success of Gandhi in building a great nationalist movement largely on the back of Muslim rather than Hindu discontent with the British Raj. Now it was true, of course, that British imperialism in the Middle East never displayed the range of ambition nor indeed, perhaps, the capacity to dominate the region which it had earlier showed on the Indian subcontinent. But the idea of British command of the crossways of the world, kinders phrase, was lodged firmly, you might say, in the thinking of British leaders, and would prove extremely hard to dislodge, as we'll see in a minute. Arguably, this great forward movement, taken, you might say, on the Kinderite principles, was the most critical geostrategic decision taken by the British Empire in the course of the 20th century. Now, for much of the 1920s and 1930s, Kinder was preoccupied with his um, Imperial Shipping Committee and, indeed, with that Hudson's Bay Marine Raids question. But the huge strategic catastrophe of 1940 to 42 triggered one last Intervention, one famous last intervention by him in the uh, public discussion of grand strategy and geopolitics. In his article, The Round War and the Winning of the Peace, published in 1943, in the same year as his book, Democratic Ideals and Reality, first published in 1919, was reissued, this time as a penguin special. For McKinder looked out on a world by 1943 in what had threatened to happen in 1918 had actually happened. The British had been driven out of Europe. Europe had been united against Britain as well as the rest of the world. In 1918 to 22, however, from the Kinders view, what had been a successful containment of Russia had been replaced by, by 1943 by a quite different picture. Russian victory at Stalingrad showed argued Mackinder, that Russia now had demonstrated in a way which perhaps he predicted uh, 40 years earlier, that it had both the manpower and resources to contain Germany and to dominate Eastern Europe. What was the consequence of that, argued Mackinder, for the protection of the rimlands of the world against a potentially dominant heartland in Eurasia? In his Round World and the Winning of the Peace, McKinder showed no interest in the Middle East. Instead, what he recommended, what he saw as being the inevitable pattern, was that Britain would become what he called a moated aerodrome. France would be relegated to being a bridgehead for the moated aerodrome, with America behind it, to advance, if necessary, to the of Europe, or Central Europe, against the onslaught of the now expanded heartland. The logic of this was it in the face of both of Germany and perhaps ultimately of a uh, dominant Russian heartland power, all the effort must be put into home defence, taken, as it were, or, or practised alongside, as it were, the expected assistance of the United States. This was a view in which you might say empire had become irrelevant and redundant. And in some ways you might think that, that kind of logic was expressed by Attlee in 1946-47, who regarded the Middle East as being a region that could no longer be safely defended by the British against external threats. What we want, said Attlee, was a wide glass of um, a desert and Arabs against external threats. But of course, Attlee's view did not prevail. It was not also the outcome which Churchill or Smuts or Anthony Eden, Churchill's uh, sidekick, wanted either. All of them believed that Britain had to remain powerful in the Mediterranean and in the Middle East. And of course, it was precisely that view which at least Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan and the Chiefs of Tav successfully imposed upon him in 1947. Now, this has often been seen as being, perhaps, a reckless or misjudged decision – one which committed Britain to a course which ultimately led, of course, to the disaster of Suez. But we can, I think, see a deeper, again, McKinderite logic at work in this, perhaps, rather remarkable decision. In the face of the expansion of the Soviet Union, embodiment now of the Eurasian heartland, The Middle East served, of course, this was the argument of the day, as a means of containment, the place in which air power could be launched in a way it could not be from Britain, to uh, deter Soviet attack on Europe. But it was also now seen in Britain, perhaps as the demise of British sea power as the single greatest geostrategic asset which Britain possessed. Control of the Middle East was the one thing which enabled Britain and its imperial system to claim something approaching parity with the United States as a great world power. Control of the Middle East lifted Britain above the ranks of all other surviving European states. It was the leverage which would enable it, as it were, to claim from the United States uh, at least a sense of shared command over the destinies of the West. It is therefore not surprising, I think, that Anthony Eden, Churchill's heir and successor, found himself totally and irrevocably committed to preserving that overlordship of the Middle East by one means or another. There is perhaps no great conflict between the way in which he was willing in 1954 to make the Anglo-Egyptian agreement to withdraw from the Suez Canal base, but his decision two years later to re-enter Suez once he believed that Nasser was set upon destroying Britain's influence and position as the arbiter of Middle Eastern politics. For Eden, perhaps, there was no more question of giving up British command over the Middle East than there was for Pitt or Palmerston to scuttle the fleet. But as a result, Eden became what you might say, you might call the Nerve of 1805, or the rogersvensky of 1905. Sewers for him, was a Tsushima or a Trafalgar in reverse. Can we draw any conclusions, as we approach the end, out of this, perhaps, hack any conclusions out of this, perhaps, rather recalcitrant material? What I'd like to suggest is that Mackinder shines a fitful but penetrating light on those puzzles which I tried to sketch out at the beginning. Firstly, and I think most validly, the way in which his insight into Britain's position in the world helps to explain why there should have been such a persistent notion of British centrality which lasted indeed into the 1960s. A centrality in world affairs wasn't simply economic or geopolitical, it was also cultural and ideological as well. Even perhaps that sense of Britain as the central place in which the modern industrial character of the world's economy had begun first and developed furthest. Centrality fortified and encouraged the commitment to great powerdom in Britain, the persistent assumption that Britain could not be less than equal uh, to any other great power, a belief whose grip was only perhaps finally broken decisively in 1968. Secondly, to go back to another of my puzzles, it was that logic of centrality which dictated that Russia must be the most constant foe Platonically, if not always in practice, of British world interests. Germany alone could not destroy the British Empire, but Russian weakness had nearly destroyed the British Empire in 1918. Its betrayal in 1940, or 39 perhaps, had shattered British power in 1940, 41. Its resurgence after 1945 ruined any chance of a British Empire recovery in the post-war years. Thirdly, for Mackinder perhaps we can draw the conclusion that while sea power was indispensable to Britain's survival as a great world power, it was not a sufficient condition for that survival, even before air power became so important. As a great archipelago of interests and possessions, Britain needed not just sea power if it was to defend itself against the threat posed ultimately by the heartland and especially by German alliance with Russia or domination of Russia. The archipelago power also needed bridgeheads from which to uh, resist and ultimately deter uh, the attack from the heart, heart of Eurasia. Control of India above all, I'd say, from this point of view, was vital especially if you hope to use the Middle East as the great bridgehead from which to defend British interests around the world. Fourthly, that Mackinder's insights suggest that it was not catastro- that it was catastrophic accident rather than inevitable decline, which explains Britain's fall from empire. This nearly occurred in June 1918 the reasons we've just recently discussed. And it was to occur, perhaps decisively, in the way in which the British were driven out of Europe and lost control over parts of their empire, lost their claim on the loyalty, ultimate loyalty, or even of their settler uh, dominions after 1940 as a consequence of the collapse both of their military position in Europe and the loss of much of their economic empire as well. Finally, perhaps, Mackinder's writing is a reminder of how close a connection exists or can exist between, as it were, the news of the day and the most subtle and original interpretations of global affairs. Mackinder's engagement with the world, his close attention to world politics, his close involvement in both politics and government, were in large part, perhaps, the reason behind the immediacy which he grasped, as it were, the events of of global political change and sought to reflect on them in the ways that uh, he did in his major writings. Maybe, perhaps, even now, there's somebody who's brooding upon the significance of Afghanistan as the future pivot of world history. Thank you very much. If I stand up, yes. yes, would you like to group
0: them, John? Yeah, no, well, no I will. Two or three, or how do you like it? Take them come. Yes. come. All right. If um, people could make off now, we'll have a, a brief pause, and then we have sort of 30, 35 minutes for questions, and John Darwin's very kindly said that he will respond. So, if you could make off as quickly as possible and we'll take the questions one by one. I'm afraid we've only got one uh, microphone. Yes, I see. Hang on a second, let people go is the only thing. Good, if those who are asking questions could say who they are. Can I begin? Yes, I think you can set off
2: now. Right. Um, uh, My name is Michael Williams. Um, I'd like to ask um, what influence um, Dr. Darwin thinks that Mackinder's ideas had upon other great powers in, the t- uh, in this period, and in particular, what influence Mackinder's ideas had upon what I might describe as Bolshevik geopolitics from Lenin to Stalin, and of course what in- impact they had on uh, German geopolitical ideas and on the ideas of Spickman in the United States.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I think the um, Mackinder's best biographer, who is um, uh, blurt, uh argues that, in fact, as far as the Soviet Union is concerned, that uh, there's very little sign of his exerting any influence upon their thinking. Um, and I've got no reason to, to quarrel with that, that view. Um, perhaps you might say that, the, that, uh, that, that there's a certain sort of logic in the position of the leaders of the Soviet Union, which didn't need Mackinder, as it were, to, uh, to be pointed out, it didn't need Mackinder to point it out to them. Um, now, it certainly seems to be the case that Mackinder's uh, ideas and writings were um, familiar to uh, some, at least, of the uh, notable writers uh, in, uh, uh, in, in Germany, particularly Haushofer. Uh, and McKinley was certainly extremely sensitive about this point. I mean, goes to lengths on a number of occasions uh, to deny that, you know, he thought in geopolitical terms or he used the term himself, uh, or that his ideas could have you know, shaped um, German views and the views of, of Haushofer in particular. And, of course, you can see why. I mean, he should have been so concerned to do this. After all, uh, he hardly wanted to be labelled Uh, In the 1940s, as the man whose ideas had set Hitler off on the the, the primrose path he'd followed uh, since the mid-1930s, but I think that you know I suspect this was you know uh, an attempt to uh, deflect what otherwise might have been um, very damaging criticism. Um, As far as the United States is concerned, and people like Spickman, yes, I think I think it is extraordinary how uh, quickly Mackinder's ideas are taken up. Uh, in the United States almost as soon as it's clear that um, Britain has been defeated in 1940 and that this opens the way to um, a a, a threat to the United States' own Mm. interests. You begin to see articles being published in the United States very, very, very quickly um, imagining a future in which, effectively, the United States is going to be blockaded by you know, a dominant, as it were, German-led you know, um, Eurasian power. Uh, and there's a very striking overlap, I think, between not only um, Spickman's ideas, but those of subsequent uh, American commentators. Um, uh, I mean, particularly if you, if you read um, uh, Brzezinski's The Grand Chessboard, I mean, there, you know, set out is a totally McKinderish view. With one great absence, very striking absence, uh, Brzezinski says nothing about the Middle East. Perhaps it was too delicate a topic, really, for him to actually uh, engage with. But there's no real consideration in the way there is in Mackinder's Democratic Ideals and Reality or his uh, you know, uh, other writings of the importance of the Middle East uh, in, the, you know, in, in the sort of geopolitics of, of a world in which um, the Rimlands are facing the raising heartland. Um,
3: hello, Alistair Anderson. Um, My question is, uh, was it an intrinsic flaw in Mackinder's thinking or the disregarding of his thinking by British imperial policy makers or simply historical irony um, that led the British government to go to war in 1939 Mm -hmm. um, to prevent a possible German heartland empire, only to bring an actual communist heartland empire into existence um, at the end of the war? Mm. That's my question. Mm. <laughs> so those three so the first part of
1: it re- can you just repeat the, f- the first part of it was uh, you had, you had uh, three f- possibilities. So the a flaw. first part was: is it they ignored it, or is it a flaw in his thinking? flaw in his
3: thinking. Was it the way they impl- uh, uh, applied it or disregarded it, or was it a simple historical accident or an irony that it should lead to a heartland empire? Though not the one they right. expected. <laughs> well,
1: I, I, I certainly, it might say a, a, an irony. Well, why did, I mean, the, I suppose it's what, is, what seems clear is that Mackinder's influence on British strategic thinking uh, in the interwar years was very limited. And as I suggested in a way, I mean, to some extent, you could be forgiven, had you been even an attentive reader of Mackinder, uh, for being a little bit uncertain about actually what his real prescription was. After all, as I said, there is this sort of tension between his uh, navalism or his emphasis upon the importance of sea power and his insistence upon the, um, you know, almost irresistible domination that the Eurasian heartland was going to be able to, um, you know, to, to, to develop. So, how would you? I mean, what if uh, if they'd followed Mackinder's um, heartland thesis? What should a British government have done? Uh, in 1939-1940. Well, clearly they should have attempted, above all, to divide or preserve a division between Germany and the Soviet Union. They should have worked harder, you might argue, uh, to um, prevent the pact of uh, August 1939 taking place. They should have pursued a far more active policy, active diplomacy um, uh, in preceding months, to try and draw the Soviet Union towards an alliance. But I think one of the reasons why perhaps they don't do so, quite apart from the great mistrust of the Soviet Union and doubts about its capacity to even, you know, to to actually resist uh, uh, Germany effectively, um, is because there was a fundamental conflict about whether Britain's greatest enemy was really going to be Germany or Russia in parts of its imperial system anyway. After all, British strategic plans assumed that, uh, that the northwest frontier was still vulnerable uh, to a Russian attack uh, and that uh, um, Russia's role in a, you know, in, in, in was, was, was bound to be one which was in fundamental conflict with the preservation of a, of a worldwide British system. So I don't know whether, in some ways, whether uh, Mackinder did offer very clear guidance as to how you should manage relations with Russia. Um, And as we know, of course, the underlying presumption in British policy in 1938-39 was that actually you could contain Germany as long as um, it wasn't able to, uh, to, to make too much use of the resources of Eastern Europe and Russia in particular. The British presumed, because they didn't imagine that what happened in 1940 could ever possibly happen, that Britain and France would be able to hold the line against Germany, that in due time they would get resources from the rest of the world, particularly the United States, to help in that, and that the German rearmament program would eventually lead to, um, you know, the sort of the explosion of the German economy. It could not sustain uh, this very rapid process of rearmament. So as long as you stayed firm and didn't do anything reckless, Um, this German threat would gradually be be contained, as it were, by a kind of, you know, almost suffocating economic pressure rather than um, anything more dramatic by way of military activity. So it's a sort of, uh, it's a very, well, in some ways, it's a kind of little Hartian Byzantine solution rather than than anything more, you might say, vigorous. Um, So I suppose in that sense, I mean... um, uh, as a uh, point I made earlier, really, McKinder doesn't offer a clear guide as to what you should have done in 1938-39, as much as you might have
4: hoped. Um, Isabel Richard, um, I was wondering if you could comment on McKinder's attitudes towards Africa, and I'm thinking in particular of the interwar period when uh, people on the continent, and in France and in Germany and Belgium, uh, also inspired by a were thinking of ideas of Euro-Africa, uh, amongst advocates of European cooperation, but also amongst colonials, and um, either including British possessions in Africa or excluding, and I was wondering how that would fit into Mackinder's thinking.
1: Well, I don't, think, I, I, I don't think, despite the fact that he devoted a period of his life to climbing uh, Mount Kenya, as the first person to climb Mount Kenya, Uh, I don't think there's too much sign that Mackinder fought all that hard about uh, Africa as a great problem in world affairs. Um, Remember, what he does say is that much of Africa lying below the Sahara or south of the Sahara in effect is uh, insulated from the uh, the sort of threat of the heartland. So that it's a kind of, you know, uh, it's part of the island world which he contrasts with the, you know, the, the world island proper, the sort of, you know, of Eurasia. So I don't think he's, uh, he's very much concerned with it as, you know, in his sort of you know, big geopolitical thinking. Um, now, what he is concerned about, and this is why it is worth just mentioning his um, long years of service on that imperial shipping committee, what he is concerned with, of course, is um, uh, protecting British... Um, seaborne trade uh, and um, and promoting it as much as possible uh, and of course, within that sort of scenario, the contribution made by you know Africa to, um, to to British trade might have been not insignificant now, I put it like that because, as we know, in two years are years in which the tremendous fall in the price of most commodities means that most of the African, tropical African economies are really left uh, to, not quite to rot, but certainly on a very much a care maintenance basis. Uh, in contrast, of course, with what happens after 1945. Had Mackinder lived on, really, into the post-1945 years uh, and seen the huge importance of um, African commodities, both strategically and also in terms of their dollar-earning power for Britain, no doubt he'd have had much more interesting things to say, I think, about Africa's importance to, you know, this imperial archipelago. But I think the, the, the fact is really that uh, either before 1914 it's too early, or in the interwar years the global economy is too somnolent uh, to make uh, tropical Africa of any great, I think, uh, or any larger significance to him.
0: Alan. Then Sujit and then i
2: Hi, Alan Um, Skett. I I I take it from what you say that his interests are really purely uh, strategic and geopolitical, but did he have any interest in empire as a civilizing mission or the embodiment of racial superiority or bringing culture from the West to other parts, inferior parts of the world? I mean, what does he take all that for granted?
1: Mm. I think his views on that are really very conventional. Um, He seems to... Uh, simply, I suppose, endorse what would have been a fairly standard view at the time. And what's very striking, I suppose, I mean, even in the most fully developed account he offers, which is democratic ideals and reality, is that uh, he shows extraordinary indifference or lack of interest in the way in which the various um, colonial peoples who might be affected by his you know, grand strategic geometry might actually respond to this. Um, they are simply treated, it seems to me, by him largely as uh, passive beings, you know, within this uh, grand framework. And in fact, you know, you might say that in general, uh, thinking as he does in terms of blocks, in terms of the imperatives of geography and of transport, you really get a sense that he's got very far, in thinking about people outside Britain, very far below, as it were, the level to begin to think really in terms of communities or individuals or even, you know, the complexity of, of identities, even in this great Eurasian heartland which he spent so much time writing and talking about. So I think, I think no, I think his views by that are very conventional. On the other hand, when he comes back to Britain, I mean, I think if you, during this period when he's an MP in Glasgow, um, he does seem to uh, show a great deal of concern about um, what he sees as being the, you know, the hardships and the and the unfairnesses, uh, the squalor and the inefficiency. Of course, is inefficiency. I think really, which he's concerned with. Uh, he's, he's very much a part of that national efficiency school. Uh, that's what does concern him. And to say he produces this slogan almost. Um, I think in 1910, he says really, free trade creates slums. Uh, tariff reform is going to be the main in which uh, you escape from this, um, this, this world of you know, hyper-competition. Um, and again, in democratic ideals and reality, he begins to talk in a way which seems, again, perhaps slightly out of kilter with this large-scale geopolitical thinking about the desirability of having balanced communities in which you won't be so dependent upon international trade or even the international division of labor. is almost a sort of vision of something, you know, we might think of as being really remarkably sort of, um, uh, you know, carbon sensitive. I mean, you know, he wants to actually as uh, smaller communities, achieving, you know, greater degree of self-sufficiency and not being... So I think, uh, so I think perhaps it's a mistake to expect from Mackinder uh, total consistency of thinking. Uh, it seems to me that uh, that his ideas are triggered by his encounter with you know various contemporary problems, issues, and and, and, uh, and, and and to that matter crises, and he produces you know ideas about these. Some of which can be knit together, you might say, into a sort of general McKinderite form. Others of which seem to be really rather, you might say, um, erratic. So I think, but going back to your main question, I think I think no, I think his views on that seem to be, to be entirely conventional. Of course, as perhaps you know, I mean his expedition to Mount Kenya in uh, ninety nine was, was is it sometimes alleged. Not only did he um, as it were, lead an expedition which um, inflicted considerable hardship on the large caravan of porters on which it depended, but there's a mysterious question of what happened to six of those porters who were shot. Um, this has never quite been cleared up. Uh, and uh, a lot of the Mackinder's papers to do with the Mount Kenya expedition were destroyed and uh, he never spoke about this. Uh, and, uh, uh, as you can imagine, as it were various, as it were, possible scenarios suggest themselves. but There's no proof, one or the other, I hasten to say, but, uh, but certainly um, uh, he's not somebody who you would naturally assume to have been overly preoccupied with the fate of, of subject people as such.
4: Sujit. Hi, Sujit Sivar Syndrome. Um, it's really striking that you have um kind of used um, this man as a sort of biographical entry point into the history of empire writing. Um, And after quite a few years of skepticism about the use of biography in imperial history, I think we've seen a revival of biography across a whole range of genres. So you could think of Linda Colley or Miles Ogborn. Um, I'm wondering whether you would place yourself in that school of biographical writing and whether you could reflect a little bit on the usefulness of biography and its limitations um, for imperial historians. And I also wanted to ask you about nationalism um, and why and, and how he sort of came to terms with nationalism in the interwar period. Um, but perhaps you could sort of answer oh, that How the briefly. kinder came to terms with nationalism. Yeah, because basically, I mean, in your other work, I guess, you've sort of shown how this in- incredible optimism um, about British power and, and supremacy, mm. um, in a sense, came to terms quite successfully with nationalism. Mm. Um, but nationalism didn't seem to figure in today's talk. So no. I'm just wondering if you could just outline yeah, that sure, briefly. Sure, too. Sure.
1: Biography. Well um, I suppose the short answer is um, no. I don't think I would see myself as somebody who thinks of biography as being a particularly efficient way to come to terms with the nature of empire. I mean there's no question it can be can offer uh, a route into understanding especially perhaps those areas of, um, of imperial history which are in other ways rather difficult to get at. I think the great success of Linda Colley's book on um, Elizabeth Marsh is that she, it's a way of linking up um, an extraordinary set of different um, places and showing the connections between them in a way which otherwise I think would have been rather difficult to do and I think in that sense a very successful way of showing that, that there were connections and uh, interactions between these places which could otherwise escape your notice and certainly could not be brought into as a way a single frame without using you know, an individual as being you know, this remarkable individual, Elizabeth Marsh, as being the person who travelled along all these various wires and connections and I'm going to show you how they actually operated. So I think, I think there's a utilitarian purpose, perhaps, uh, sometimes in using biography, and I suppose in a way that's what I've done this evening. But in general, I suppose I'm sceptical about how far biography really enables one to get very far with this, partly because uh, inevitably biography is concerned with the viewpoint of one person. Uh, and unless you are uh, writing a, a very large-scale collective group biography, it's impossible really to do justice to either the world in which the individual is operating or certainly to the range of opinions and, and range of, of uh, you know, actions and engagements of other people. So I'm, I'm not somebody I think who's converted to biography as being a, a prime tool for the historian except where really there's no other option. Uh, and it could be in certain cases, either the sources or whatever it is, don't allow one to do anything else. And in that case, it's, it's, a, it's a faute de mire. But I think it is a faute de mire, personally. Now, as far as nationalism goes, um, yeah, um, I, I, yes, I don't think McKinder as I said, uh, to answer another question, I don't think he's really at all interested in the opinions of you know, colonial peoples. Um, what's striking, I think, in the uh, interwar years um, is that from a British point of view? From a British central point of view, from London's point of view, um, certainly there are plenty of grounds to be alarmed about the risks posed by mass movements, which can sustain sufficient, you know, you might say, force and impetus to really um, attack or challenge British influence as well as authority. But by and large, British experience in the interwar years suggested that if you were reasonably clever about it. Um, that it was possible uh, normally to divide such movements or to take the wind out of their sails in various ways, or in some way to contain or tame them by pushing them, prodding them into constitutional shapes and structures which effectively limited their options. And, you know, after all, I mean, you could go right up to the end of the interwar years, even in India, where you have by far the most effective mass nationalist movement anywhere within the imperial system. And there, even from a point of view of, of, of Indian leaders, that seemed to be what was happening. They weren't. They were losing their, their, their freedom of action uh, rather than being in a position to be able to say, well, within a few years, we will have pushed the British out of India. Nehru, Nehru is very pessimistic about this. after all. So that would be, I think, my broad take on that.
0: Good. Over there, next, Then I see David and Anthony, and I see you, and I think we've got one more probably after that.
3: Hi, I'm Mark Sloboda. Um, Whatever the exact intellectual linkages, linkages, there is a definite resurgence of Mackinder's ideas in the neo-Eurasianist thinkers in Russia today, uh, Gamilov, Panarin, Alexander Dugin. Um, and it has be- morphed into what some call a full-fledged ideology and foreign policy vehicle. The last two years, at least since the August War, there's been the elevation of a number of neo-Eurasianists in academics, think tanks, uh, and, and in national security circles. Um, what uh, would you think that we uh, in the West should uh, think about the seriousness of Eurasianist ideas uh, today uh, in, a, in a globalized world?
1: Well, um, I suppose, uh, I'm not sure how far McKinder's insights help with this, but I suppose the, 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 uh, the, the bottom line is how far you think that that Eurasian movement is actually going to have behind it uh, the kind of economic resources to give it real weight uh, and punch uh, in the world. And I suppose the, the, obvious, the obvious retort would be that the strength of what uh, Mackinder regarded as being the Rimland is on the face of it still much greater than any um, Eurasian heartland, or at least one which did not include, as it were, uh, the German economy within its limits uh, uh, because after all that Rimland has now been massively uh, reinforced by the growth of the Chinese economy as well as that of Japan Um, and uh, and by the growth, of course, again, of a a European economy. Now, of course, uh, any one of these, and the Indian economy, uh, into the bargain. So that it's hard to see that compared with these great um, economic powerhouses of today and tomorrow, what the Eurasian, as it were, heartland has to offer is really going to give it, as it were, very much capacity to interfere or disrupt or pressurize these great ribland economies and states. So uh, I think that so from that point of view uh, it doesn't seem to me if you're sitting in um, Putin's shoes standing in Putin's shoes perhaps that uh, you're, you're, you really have got a tremendously optimistic uh, um, future scenario opening up ahead of you might well be thought actually as being the reverse. It's more going to be a question of how successfully you can defend uh, this uh, great um, you know, ex-Soviet empire against the uh, enormous economic and demographic pressure of China in East Asia uh, and against the uh, pressure exerted by, um, by, by Middle Eastern economies, not least that of Iran, assuming Iran is able, not to distant future, to realise some of the economic potential that it hasn't yet done. So I, I don't personally, I, I would not be, I would be, be a lot sceptical about how far this is a, a future that's going to work.
3: David uh, David Stevenson, I was going to come back actually to the point you've just um, dealt with in the last question, and this is the issue of the balance between sea power and land power, which um, I think in many ways, is a first impression is the most illuminating insight that I got out of looking at Mackinder's writings, but the more you think about it, the more you think, well, is, is this actually true? Does it make sense in understanding the 20th century? Certainly if you come up to the present day and what's happening now and the rise of Chinese economic power, that's fundamental to the whole thing is that they can send container ships halfway across the world full full of cheap Chinese goods. Uh, But even if you go back to sort of 1918, I mean, in fact, what happened in 1918 was that the Germans weren't able to establish um, domination of Central Europe and Asia, and they had to retreat because of pressure applied to them by the Western powers, and um, control of the North Atlantic sea lanes was fundamental to giving the Western powers the advantage in that war. Um, and if you move on to the Second World War of course the whole thing becomes more complicated in a way because of air power and you should no longer look at it just in two dimensions but um, I think part of what your talk seemed to be getting at was that Mackinder himself was in two minds about whether this um, insight continued to apply as he went on into the 1930s and 40s but but could you say more about that whether this insight is, is really actually helpful and valid?
1: Well, I think what is, what is helpful, and, and, and from, from our point of view, trying to make sense of the way in which those who attempted to manage Britain's global interests uh, uh, took their decisions, is that uh, I think that tension which I suggested there is in Mackinder is also there in their thinking. And as I try to suggest, really, if one looks at what happens in 1918, the response in the British government, what is seen as being this rapidly developing threat that the Germans would in the, after the defeat of Russia and, uh, and the suing for peace by the Bolshevik regime of brest litovsk would be able to uh, envelop the Black Sea, move into the Caucasus, connect up with the Ottoman armies and then establish, as it were, by sheer weight of numbers, um, a sort of Ottoman-German domination in the Middle East that fear is so great uh, in, might say, in, in the, uh, at the heart of the British government and in the two people who direct its war policy outside, well, in Europe and beyond Europe, Milner and Curzon, that they respond in this very dramatic way, in this, this drive to uh, somehow to get British influence and power to conquer uh, as much as they could of the Middle East as quickly as possible. With all sorts of effects um, elsewhere on the imperial system, so I think what you've got in uh, in, uh, in in say in, in that period is, on the one hand, yes, of course, it's clearly true that uh, that dependence upon sea lanes, sea communications, and sea power is fundamental. Milner himself says that actually in that letter later on in that letter passage I didn't quote, but at the same time you've got this rival perception that unless you engage in a kind of, you know, Mackinderite strategy, one which Mackinder himself recommended, as were, retrospectively, in Democratic Ideals and Reality, then the British Empire would be smashed in two, Uh, and that the capacity to go on drawing on India's resources, uh, let alone those of other parts of the Empire, uh, would be damaged, you know, beyond, possibly beyond repair, So I think you've got, I mean, uh, I think what you've got um, is uh, a kind of persistent, um, uh, you might say, duality in this British viewpoint. And as I tried to argue also, if you then ask why it was that even after the loss of India in 1947, you can call it the loss, uh, the British remained committed to being the dominant power in the Middle East. this is actually in a period in which British sea power is now no longer a decisive factor um, because American sea power is so much greater, um, in which sea power no longer can be the, you know, the, 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 the basis of British world power. But the Middle East is going to, as I well, said, take up the slack. That, it seems to me, is what implicitly um, people like Eden especially and Bevin think, and that, that control of the Middle East is going to allow them uh, to exercise leverage not just against Soviet Union but in general in world politics of a kind which will preserve Britain's real status as a world power. Now I think that so I think that Mackinder's uh, uh, insights do allow one as it were to see um, why it was that a British government might have arrived at that kind of perception. It's not one which I think is very explicit by any means. It seems to me it's really very, in many ways very instinctive or tacit but I think it's it's there in Eden without question.
0: Good. Three more questions. Eleven minutes. Anthony next.
2: Um, I was just wondering, Anthony Best, um, I was just wondering about the... What was his relationship with the ideas coming from the Round Table group mm. about the development of the empire? Mm. And did he feel as if his ideas were being marginalised with the rise of interwar internationalism?
1: Yes, I think... Uh, it's a I say, one of the great pities that McKinder's own correspondence is so truncated. That we have, you know, if you go through his papers, there's virtually nothing there. Um, so it's very hard to reconstruct um, quite what sort of um, relationship he had with you know, the sort of round tables. He certainly has, before 1910, I mean, clearly quite a close um, connection with, particularly with Amory. And Amory in a way, of course, is a is a very key figure. I mean, a very fertile brain, I mean one of the great bores of British politics, that's always said, Amory. But he had a very fertile brain, a very ready pen, and he pours out ideas. It's he who in coins the phrase the southern British world, which is very much this sort of, you know, again this archipelago which which is great. And and there's no question that uh, that Amory perhaps in a way acts as a sort of catalyst to some of Mackinder's thinking, and at the famous meeting of the Royal uh, Geographical Society, it's Amory who comments very favorably on Mackinder's formulation about you know, the geographical pivot of history. So, uh, in that sense, he's certainly in touch with that world uh, which is concerned with imperial, you know, um, coordination and greater imperial unity, close imperial integration. Um, when you get to the interwar years, actually, I think Mackinder is very realistic. Um, there's a discussion somewhere uh, in his papers really of the 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 role of this Imperial Shipping Committee and what Bakinder how he defines it I think is actually quite revealing. He says we can't really um, have institutions which control especially or can of controlling um, the empire as a whole, particularly of course the self-governing parts of it which are the most, apart from India, the most valuable. What we can do is we can fashion institutions in which there is participation and cooperation. And it's through those that we are most likely to achieve as it were, if you like, you know, that sort of general strengthening of the imperial system, to which he was certainly ardently committed before 1914. So I think he does actually, in a way, which some of the tables don't quite manage, he makes that transition towards a world which you could, I suppose, describe as a kind of incipient Commonwealth point of view uh, in the interwar years. And I think you say, I mean, is in many ways a very very realistic character I mean he has very wide life experience and I think he was, uh, uh, he, was um, he was not dogmatic in, in, in uh, not dogmatic in his commitment to certain ways of achieving as it were this imperial strengthening to which he was very committed
0: second last question
3: um, Lois Robson. I just wondered whether Mackinder had anything to say about East Asia, given the British struggle to maintain their interest there after nineteen eighteen.
1: Um, again, I think um, nothing tremendously interesting or insightful. I suppose um, he sees it, of course, as being um, a part of this this world of the you know the insular or semi-insular rim around Eurasia, um, and uh, Again, I think, of course, for him, Britain's relations with Japan, in the logic of that, Britain's relations with Japan are uh, very important. Um, when you come to the end of his life, really, in that last uh, article, Around World, the Winning of the Peace, um, he really seems to envisage, of course, by that time, I suppose, after all, this is the year, it is the year in which the British abandon their unequal treaties, of course, finally, and, and, and accept that, you know, that the special position in Shanghai and elsewhere and the treaty ports is going to go. Um, um, so I think, in a sense, it's perhaps not surprising that McKinder appears in 1943 in that piece there to um, imagine, appears to imagine that in the world that's coming into view, China and India will have become, you know, genuinely self-governing uh, parts of the world. Um, so he sort of factors that in, and that's all part, you might think, of this um, falling back upon upon Europe, which uh, you know goes along with his vision of Britain as the moated aerodrome. You know, this is, a, I might say, a very very limited role in the future world. One, say, very much driven perhaps by a sense of the situation in 1943. Um, so I think there's not a there's not a very um, profound, I think, um, uh, concern with with East Asia in particular. But I think he would, you know, if one had pressed him on this, I suspect he would have said, well, of course, I regard our capac- Britain's capacity to maintain close commercial relations with East Asia and to protect it against, you know, the um, a kind of revival of the, the old Mongol intrusion of the, um, you know, Eurasian Middle Ages as being important.
2: Um, <clears throat> David Starkey, uh, you, you talked a lot about... Uh Mackinder's um, uh, commitment to the Imperial Shipping Committee between the, the wars. Mm. Um, and this, of course, reflects Mackinder's almost obsession with sea power, which was mm. understandable. Mm. But is there not a paradox here? Because in the interwar period, of course, uh, technology was the, – the frontier of technology was sh- – Uh, moving from shipping to aviation, Mm. and aviation was seen as the new imperial instrument, Mm. uh, the founding of imperial airways to Mm. knit the Mm. uh, empire together. Mm. Um, My question is, was there any reflection in Mackinder's later writings? Did he recognize this change in the technology of empire, as it were?
1: No, I think it's, I mean, it's a... Buckinger's career is rather curious in a way because I suppose that what you get is all his most fertile um, ruminations, really um, between 1902 and 1919, the year which he published Democratic Ideals and Reality, with The Round World and the Winning of the Peace in 1943 as being a kind of sort of epilogue almost, written under dramatically different geostrategic geostr- conditions, um, and of course one has to remember that by 1920 or so, I mean, um, well, he was uh, by then uh, in his sixties, and uh, although no doubt many people sustained enormous intellectual activity long after that, perhaps you know he become his thought become somewhat set by that point, um, and that you know the capacity to really um, think out. Um, the consequences of especially air power and air technology um, hadn't, you know, were not really there. To be fair to him I mean he does, in earlier writing, he does show um, an awareness of the potential of air communication, but not, I think, doesn't develop, it I think, very far. Um, Now I suppose in defense of him you would say that after all um, in terms of the kind of world that he's concerned with, this world Uh, especially as far as Britain is concerned, that this vast um, uh, empire connected primarily by maritime communications, uh, that it was perhaps difficult to see, um, except in the very specific setting of Britain's air defence against a European enemy, it was perhaps difficult to see that air power was going to be of critical importance. It's certainly true that after all the purpose of Imperial Airways was to allow rapid transit of mail and of personnel across, you know, from Britain as far as Point of Australia and that made of course the Middle East, Point Amory of course made particularly, that made the Middle East even more important than it had been before because it's the the air corridor to, to India and beyond. But I think he could be forgiven for assuming that um, that until very you know, certainly until the perhaps the second World War the capacity of aircraft to really transform on a, you know, in terms of volume and scale um, the nature of communication whether of people and of goods uh, was was still rather limited and that uh, in terms of the defense of that imperial system say, with the exception of of Europe itself and Western Europe and the British Island, uh, that uh, air power was was perhaps important, but it was not critical.
0: John, thank you very much indeed for a fascinating lecture. Thank Thank you. you.